0: streams to look upon the one who bled to save me and walk with him songs of voice a thousand years
1: Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Worship at Fusion. We're so glad that you're joining us in person as well as online. Welcome.
0: Hear these words from Psalm 130, verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning.
1: Amen. I invite you to stand and worship with us. You are who you say you are. You'll do what you say you'll do. new song. I just want to invite you to dig, dig deep into the words as you learn it. One two, three, one, two, three, four,
0: five, six. I believe you gave sight to the blind. I believe that the dead came to light.
1: seated.
2: Good morning, Fusion family. Good morning. Good morning, good morning. It, uh, this morning we have the absolute joy and uh, privilege to claim God's covenant promises in baptism over, uh, over this little one right before me, uh, little Elsa Joy Belarjan. And uh, we welcome her this morning into the family of God. And uh, that is good news, amen? Amen, amen. amen. Tom and Leah will make uh, promises to Elsa this morning. Uh, We as the church family uh, will also be making promises to Elsa and to their family this morning. Uh, But the most incredible thing happening uh, this morning is is that God also makes promises uh, to this little one, Elsa Joy, according to God's abundant grace and his love for this little one. God's word testifies uh, to God's faithfulness and his covenant promises extended to his people. And God established that covenant. Uh, long, long ago with Abraham and Abraham's descendants. And and to Abraham, God gave this sign and seal of the covenant in circumcision. And then with Jesus, Jesus Christ establishes a new covenant with his church. And the sign and the seal of that covenant is this sign and seal of baptism. And and so this morning, we, we use baptism as a new sign and a new seal of God's promises to his new covenant people the church that we are all the family of God and that is a a beautiful wonderful amazing picture of God's grace we we offer as the church in our tradition we offer this gift of baptism for our children as well as adults because we know that God's love for us precedes right comes before our love for him You know, Elsa does not understand how much Leah and Tom, you love her with all your heart. She doesn't understand how much she is loved by family and friends who are here this morning, but that does not change the truth that she is loved. It does not change the truth and the reality that she is part of your family, and she's looking at me, giving me a smile, and I got like butterflies in my heart because she is just adorable, yeah. In a similar way, today, Uh, Elsa doesn't understand it yet, what Jesus did for her. She doesn't understand the extent of God's love for her, but that doesn't change the fact that our good God loves her and uh, calls her his daughter. And that's the good news that we celebrate and recognize today. And so at this time, I'd like to invite Tom, Leah, uh, Greta, you get to come up as well. Do you want to come up? You're excited, yeah. And, uh, And Elsa as well. As they come forward, hey, Greta, do you want to come forward? Do you, want to, do you want to put your hand in the water? No, you don't? It's okay. I'm going to do that. You want to touch my hand? Yeah. You know, this is a reminder for all of us. Baptism is this reminder that, you know, Greta, when you were a little one, we put water on your head as well because you know what? You're a daughter of God. Isn't that exciting? I wish we all had that same joy, exuberance, and excitement about that, but that is so, what a, what a lesson that we can learn. Uh, Leah and Tom, uh, because God has given you the responsibility uh, to love and to raise uh, Elsa, I ask you to make the following commitments. And I uh, just ask, at the end of these three questions, uh, just to respond together, we do God helping us. And so here are the questions. Do you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Accept the promises of God and affirm the truth of the Christian faith which is proclaimed in the Bible and confessed in this church of Christ. Do you believe that your children, though sinful by nature, are received by God in Christ as members of his covenant and therefore ought to be baptized? And then do you promise in reliance on the Holy Spirit and with the help of the Christian community to do all in your power to instruct Elsa in her Christian faith and to lead her by your example to be Christ's disciple. Tom and Leah, what is your response? We do, God help us. All right. And now Fusion family, uh, I'd invite you to stand as we stand with joy and have this joy and privilege of standing alongside uh, Tom and Leah and their commitment to Elsa. Uh, congregation, we, uh, we make these promises, and so I'm gonna ask you this question and ask you to respond. We do, God helping us if you affirm People of Fusion, do you promise to receive Elsa in love, to pray for her, to help instruct her in the faith, to encourage and sustain her in the fellowship of believers? People of God, what is your response? I do. God helping us. And you may be seated. And now, Fusion, we've for a long time used the French Reformed liturgy. These are beautiful words that speak of God's covenant love and I'm gonna, I'm gonna speak these words uh, over Elsa as a word of truth and I wonder if she'll let me hold her hand. Yeah. For you, little child, Jesus Christ has come. He has fought. He has suffered. For you, he entered Gethsemane in the horror of Calvary. For you, he uttered the cry, it is finished For you he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and there he intercedes for you. All this was done for you, little one, though you do not know any of it yet, but we will continue to tell you the good news until it becomes your own. And so the promise of the gospel is fulfilled. We love because he first loved us. God's people say, amen. All right, do you want to watch at least? All right, all right. Elsa Joy, you are so loved. You are fascinated by what's about to happen. Elsa Joy, I baptize you in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. And then we have a little towel (laughs) to dry you up. You did so good. God's people praise God. Amen. Tom and Leah, I believe, uh, I believe many here know a certain story, the dramatic way that Elsa made her entrance into this world. For those of you who don't know, little Elsa was born in the front seat of a pickup truck on the off-ramp. We were on 196. On 196, so. Almost to the exit. All that that construction and potholes and, okay, yeah. Anyway, so by the way, I think we all have a newfound respect for Leah, especially Tom, a little bit, you know, (laughs) but maintaining cool under pressure. Uh, But Tom kept driving. He did. Kept driving, and I got permission to share this, just an FYI. (laughs) But Tom kept on driving to the emergency room and and we are so grateful that she is healthy and strong and just gazing at the world. Uh, But because of that story, uh, Leah, you shared, uh, it kind of inspired you to choose one of my favorite passages from Paul's letter to the Philippians, uh, a a passage that reminds us that life will be filled with unexpected moments, life will be filled with difficulty and challenges, but Christ is our constant, Christ is our our source of true joy and contentment in all circumstances and a way forward, and he's our strength. And so let me read this verse uh, over and For this family. I rejoice greatly, Paul writes in the Lord, that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. And here's that secret that I can do all this through Him, through Christ who gives me strength. And, uh, and that is our prayer for this precious daughter of God. This is our prayer for your family that Christ would continue to be your strength. And I have a little, a little gift. We have, not me, but our church has a gift. Greta, do you want to hold this little book? And this is a book for your sister and here's a certificate and then a, a box in it has the French Reformed liturgy and you can hang on to that. Um, before I let you go back to your seat, can I offer a prayer? I'd love to pray. All right. Lord God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your promises over little Elsa this morning. We thank you that indeed she is your daughter, that you love her, that you knew her before she made that unexpected entrance into this world. And Lord, you have a plan for her. And we pray your grace, we pray your hand of protection and guidance over her life, over Tom and Leah, their family, as they walk with her. Lord, may you continue to nurture in her a faith that knows the name of Jesus, that loves the name of Jesus, and one day will stand before us and commit her life and her love as, for Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And God's people say, amen. amen. She gave me a little bit of a yawn right at the end. Like, wrap it up, Pastor. <laughs> all right. Hey, thank you, guys. Uh, God's people say, amen. Amen. At this time, I'd like to uh, invite the kids to make their way to the door uh, for children's ministry. As always, if the children want to stay in worship, you're more than welcome to do that. Um, and as you make your way, Pastor Darwin is going to lead us in the blessing over our children.
3: Good morning. Okay, are the adults ready for their role? Are you ready? Okay. Kids, are you ready? Okay. We're ready. The Lord be with you. you. Great. Good job. Have a good time. Take care. We'll begin our time of prayer this morning um, with a reading from Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. Gracious Father, we come before you this Sunday morning as your people, as your sons and daughters who are being formed into the image of Christ. We come before you this morning grateful for the privilege and the responsibility we have to meet for worship. We thank you for that freedom. And as we celebrate this Memorial Day weekend, we thank you for those throughout our history who have given our lives so that we can freely gather to worship you in this place and throughout our country during the week and this Sunday. And yet, Lord, even as we celebrate, those who have given their lives, our hearts are heavy this week. It has been a troubling week. When the news of the incident in South Texas regarding the shooter in the elementary school broke, it was hard, it was hard to know even how to respond. So let us take a moment now and just pause And let us pray in our hearts for the families whose lives were touched in ways that they cannot even imagine this week. Let us pray for them and let us pray for the peace, Christ. Let us pray that in the midst of confusion that you might be present. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. And yet, even as the incident in South Texas resonated throughout the country and throughout the world, we were once again hit with news of troubles with our brothers and sisters in Christ in the Southern Baptist Convention. We see over time, as the news has reported and as the reports have come out, a failure, a failure of leadership. Lord, as we navigate these difficult times, may our leadership throughout the country, throughout our churches, and even in this community be characterized by a spirit of humility, a humility that looks to you for grace and for mercy, a humility that doesn't end in a desire for grace and mercy, but a grace and mercy that transform us and transform leaders into the image of Christ. Gracious Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in the Southern Baptist Convention as they navigate the turmoil that's before them. We pray for their leaders. We pray for their people. We pray, Lord, because this is your church, it's not our church. It's not anybody else's church. It is your church. And our posture in the world and our posture to each other reflects on you. And so, Lord, may we be people of humility. May we be people of grace. May we be people of mercy. May we be patient and may we be kind as we bring the light of the gospel to bear on very difficult circumstances and situations. And so Lord, even in the midst of that, we pray for the passing of two longtime members here at Hardwick over the last couple of weeks. We pray for those who are struggling with ongoing health issues, many of them very serious, many of them reminding people that life is short. And we pray that you be with them and their families and the doctors and those surrounding them as they navigate the illnesses before them. And not even physical illnesses, Lord, we pray for, but we pray also for those who are struggling with mental health issues, who are alone, who feel that the end is near, who don't know quite how to make sense of life in the experiences around them. May you be close to them. And yet in the midst of all that, Lord, of all that, Lord, we have a baptism this morning. And that baptism reminds, you, reminds us of those covenant promises you made to us. The promise that you will be with us, that you will go with us, that you will walk alongside of us. And so, Lord, may we be a community that prays for each other, that bears one another's burdens, that walks with each other, that cares for each other, that points each other to the scriptures and to Christ. May we, as a community, be a light shining in a dark place as the gospel penetrates us, transforms us, and shapes us into the image of Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that this is your world And though sometimes it's difficult to make sense of things, we walk by faith, knowing that you are good and loving, graceful and merciful. Help us to experience that daily. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.
2: Thank you, Darwin. Good morning again. And uh, I say good morning because God is good. And uh, we, b- we believe that, right? Amen. Sometimes it's hard to, uh, to believe that. As, as, as Darwin just shared, you know, with the turmoil, the things happening in our world, um, with the things happening in our community, uh, with the things happening in, in each of our lives, um, we all bring something into this space. And... Um, you know, the word I just want to say is that, that our God is big enough to hold it all. And so we can gather with heartache, we can gather with confusion, and at the same time gather with this great joy of this little one who was smiling at me. You know I don't she smiled at me. she did, you know. But God is, is big enough to hold that. and uh, God's word gives us space to express that. And uh, so this is not a place we need to hide that, but we can bring it all because we're united in Jesus Christ. I didn't mean to give us a, a mini sermon at the beginning, but uh, do we believe we're united in Jesus Christ, amen? Amen. Um, transition. This is a transition move, okay. We're wrapping up a series of messages. Wrapping up a series of messages in, through Paul's letter to the church, uh, to this first century community of Jesus followers in Colossae. Again, Paul is is writing to a community of of Christ followers he likely has never met. He's writing from prison in Rome. This is a church plant uh, out of Ephesus. And he's writing to this community because he's heard some things that are happening there. He wants to encourage them in that. He's writing to encourage them in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you remember last week, and and here's just kind of my... I feel like every other month, at least, I have to kind of plug the Bible Project. This is their poster that kind of gives an overview of the letter as a whole. Uh, Last week, we considered the impact of the gospel on our inner lives. You remember that? And we talked about character. And we asked this question, what kind of person am I becoming? Today, we kind of take that a step further, and we kind of continue in that line of thought, and we apply the gospel uh, into our relationships, so the question for today is, how does the gospel inform and shape my relationships with others in my life? Now, before we jump into our text, um, just a little bit of heads up. In fact, maybe a little bit of a warning. This morning, we're going to be reading one of those passages that, uh, that raises a lot of questions and that might actually raise some eyebrows and give some pause. And uh, and so I just want to give you just a fair warning about that. Um, We're going to read some things, and from our modern context, we're going to be like, what in the world is he talking about? And this is where our first conversation, we started this series. Do you remember we talked about context, 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 and how context was important. And so we, we're going we're gonna to step into that context to kind of understand how the gospel is speaking in that time and place. But I just wanted to give you some fair warning. And, and here's, here's the thing. When we're going through a book of the Bible, we're going through Colossians. We're left with a couple choices, right? I could have just skipped over this because it's kind of difficult, or we're, we're gonna read it and address it and talk about it. And that was kind of the, the angle we chose this morning. So. With that being said, I invite you to stand, as uh, if you're willing and able, as we honor God, as God speaks to us through his word. Uh, we're going to kind of frame these verses this morning by a verse we read last week, which helps frame this new context in Christ Jesus. We'll start at verse 11, and then we'll jump ahead to verse 18, reading through 4, verse 6. Colossians 3, starting with verse 11. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And then we jump ahead to verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, Do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eyes are on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful and pray for those too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Join me in a word of prayer. Lord God, we pray and we ask Holy Spirit that you would open your word to us. That, Lord, you would help us to read faithfully, to listen to your spirit, and, Lord, may it all be framed in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the good news of Christ crucified, Christ risen, Christ coming again. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. A few years ago, a certain video went viral on the internet. A lot of videos have gone viral on the internet. Does the pictures of that video look familiar to anyone? Uh, it was a, a four-minute clip of two 17-year-old boys who were challenged by a father and an, or, and an uncle. They were two cousins. And he challenged them to make a phone call on an old rotary telephone. Has anyone seen this challenge? It's uh. It's pretty comical. Uh, these 17-year-old boys, they're, they're not quite sure how to dial, and so they keep looking back, like, how do I do this? And they're, they're trying to spin the dial, and they're, they're not even sure whether to pick up the phone, the receiver, before you dial, and so they're picking it up and clicking it, and they're, and they're doing all this, and it's, it's kind of a fun thing that, uh, that a family had some fun uh, at the expense, a little bit, of these 17-year-old kids. Now, before those of us who are... Uh, experts in outdated technology, okay, (laughs) before we kind of sit like up there like, I can't believe they don't know how to use a rotary phone. Uh, Question for maybe some of our older generation, you know, when you're having trouble using your computer or your iPad or maybe even how do I even get to the HDMI of the, who do you ask? Most of us ask our 17-year-old son or nephew. Can I get an amen, right? So let's not sit on that high, you know, that high horse or whatever. See, kids don't, you know, kids don't understand the rotary phone. Why? Because it was largely phased out by the 1980s, right? With uh, the push button dial tone phone. I had to like look that up. What is, how do you say it? The push button, right? So now we're just pushing buttons on a dial tone. How many of you are old enough to remember the party line? Oh, okay. Yeah, all right. I just learned about that uh, in a parenting class. But anyway, our context has changed, right? Our context has changed. And with that context changing, technology for sure has evolved over the last several decades, right? And so, so our young kids, you know, they're not going to understand the toil of getting up from the couch and changing the channel, right? And, and going to the UHF. Do you remember UHF? Yeah. I think I've referenced that one before. Or how about this one? Our, you know, you younger kids won't understand the toil of the disc man. There was the Walkman and then the Discman, you know, that personal CD player, and then, like, for those of us who had a more fancy one, had, like, a three-second skip protection. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Because if you were, like, mowing the lawn with your disc man attached to your belt, you walk, and it'll start skipping. So then you have three seconds to walk, and then you have to, you know, anyway, you won't know that toil, right? Or, the, or, or, like, you had to travel with all of your CDs, like we didn't have MP3 players, so you had this huge binder folder filled with like dozens of CDs, and so these things were like valuable. So people would like steal. It. Okay, you know you're not gonna you're not gonna know that struggle. Uh, but anyway, all that's to say is culture has changed, and forty years of technological change is substantial. Amen. Significant. So now imagine two thousand years of cultural change through millennium. You see, the, the reality is when we read scripture, we are stepping into a different world, a different culture, a different time, a different place. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when we read scripture, it kind of feels like being a 17-year-old trying to use a rotary phone. <laughs> It feels that way until someone comes along who kind of understands the rotary phone, kind of understands the context and helps us understand these words in the context in which they were written. Colossians 3.18 and following is one of those texts. When we read it through our, a modern-day perspective, when we read it through a modern-day moral lens, these words feel outdated at best and or contradictory, offensive, or even oppressive at worst, which is why we need to get back to the context, context, context. And so a quick review of kind of where we began. We started our series looking at context and specifically genre. Let's talk again about genre and context. Remember, the Bible is a collection of books, really scrolls, a collection of scrolls that contain multiple genres of literature that spans thousands of years. And not only that, but right, not quite in the middle, uh, but between what we call the Old and New Testament, there's this major new revelation in Jesus Christ, right? That's, the, that's the, the book that we call the scriptures, the book that we love. And let's talk about genre. We're wise to approach different genres differently and uniquely, right? We, we, we should read historical narrative differently than we read biblical poetry, right? We we should read narrative differently than the wisdom literature. And we're gonna be looking at the wisdom, actually starting next week, we're gonna spend the summer in the wisdom literature. We're gonna look at the the Proverbs. We're also gonna look a little bit at Ecclesiastes and Job. But we should read those things differently than biblical historical narrative. It's the same like for today. Like um, if we're reading a, a novel, like a mystery novel, we should read that differently than we read, like, the news, right? You, you're with me, right? Amen? Yeah, okay. You're with me. So genre matters. And, and, and Colossians is a letter, and that matters. It is an ancient letter written to a specific community of Christians in the first century, what was then Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey today, and it was all firmly established in the Roman Empire, That's the context, that's the genre. Paul is writing to a specific community and addressing specific concerns that they are facing. Paul does not not have in mind that he's writing a theological textbook. Paul does not have in mind that he's writing a a denominational position paper. His purpose is not to give us the the five secrets to a happy home marriage household. He's trying to help, now get this, he's trying to help a religious community, a minority religious community, navigate within the broken oppressive system and structures of the ancient Roman Empire. That's the context. That's the genre. And keep in mind, Paul is writing from prison. All right, so the apostle Paul is, is not writing from a position of power and influence, He does not have power and authority to make sweeping changes to the system that is broken, nor does he maybe even have, aside from the the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the framework really to to imagine what that might look like at this point in history. So if our expectation is for Paul to completely upend the system and declare an abolishment of slavery in this specific letter... That would be probably unpractical for the church and unrealistic expectations for Paul. Context, context, context. But, given all of that, when we actually consider the context, when we consider the Roman system that is in place, what Paul does write and what he does call the church into is actually quite remarkable. Let's dig in. The Gospel in Context. Let's talk a little bit about Roman households. To understand how really radical and subversive Paul's words actually are, we need to understand a little bit about the context into which he was writing, which means we have to understand a little bit about the Roman Empire. Paul, in multiple places in his letters, The big ones are here in Colossians as well as Ephesians chapter 5. He's addressing a Roman institution and structure. Scholars have later labeled the household codes, okay? Some of you maybe heard this. The household codes. Paul Paul again cannot upend these social structures, right? He's he doesn't have that power authority, but he can give instruction to this Christian community in how to live faithfully within the system which is corrupt and unjust. And and when we consider all that, his word is subversive and countercultural and radical. And to discover how we need to understand the context. So, and let's just say, let's just say, right? It's, the ancient Roman world is vastly different than 21st century America, okay, as far as in this arena. There's some similarities, but in this arena, vastly different. The household codes, uh, the Latin for word here is patria potesta, right? Let's talk a little bit about the the Roman household codes. In the Roman Empire, we talked about this a few weeks ago, Caesar was Lord. Caesar was the ultimate authority. And and part of the agenda and the empire, like for for Caesar and and for the, the leaders in the Roman Empire, maintaining order in the empire was of vast importance. Right? They don't want a mob, they don't want rebellion, right? They are are ruling over a vast empire. And and to maintain that order is a really delicate matter considering the disparity in wealth and power, right? Wealth is at the top and it's a small minority of people. Power is at the top. It's Caesar, right? And the majority of the people are, are at the lower tier of society. And this is where the Roman household codes as an institution come into play. Because if you can have order in the household, that order will carry on into the empire, And so there is this strong emphasis in the Roman Empire to maintain order in the household. But how would you do that? Notice there is a vast difference between Roman today. First, in the Roman household, the household codes in the ancient world, households were multi-generational. So that's a key difference. Multi-generational. So sons would, would remain in their father's house even into adulthood and as they had families of their own. And that household, depending on wealth, would have slaves living in the household as well. Now, now in the ancient Roman world, slavery was different than the atrocity of our, our history and our country, right? It doesn't make it better or, or any, like justified, but slavery was different. It wasn't slowly based on ethnicity. People came into slavery. They were either born into slavery. Some came into slavery because they were captured as prisoners of war. Others came into slavery because they were forced into slavery to pay back a debt. Now, there was some possibility to earn back your freedom in the ancient Roman world, uh, though I don't know how many people actually achieved that. Again, it was still slavery. uh, Still unjust, evil. But slavery also, we have to understand, made the empire possible. The, The Roman empire was built on the backs of forced labor. Because without advances in technology, it required a cheap labor force. It was an institution that was protected. So let's talk a little bit about the household. Patria potestas, Latin for father's power. The alpha, the eldest male in the household, the patriarch was the one who held ultimate power. And the patriarch was responsible to maintain order by any means. And that authority uh, entered into different realms of relationship listed on the screen. The the patriarch had ultimate authority over his wife, over his children, and over the slaves in his household. And so what you notice in the letters of Paul is that he always addresses these three primary relationships between husband and wife, father and children, master and slaves, because that is the context into which he is writing. Here's here's a little window into the Greek world. This is by Aristotle, Greek philosopher. This is not scripture, okay? This is a Greek secular philosopher, Aristotle, describing the household codes uh, in his work, Politics. Of household management, Aristotle writes We have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of the master over slaves, which has been discussed already, another of a father, and the third of a husband. A husband and father, we saw rules over wife and children, both free, but rule differs. The rule over his children being royal and the ruler over his wife is based on natural constitution. For although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, the male is by nature fitter for command than the female, just as the elder and full-grown is superior to the younger and more immature. Again, Greek philosopher, this is the world Paul is writing into. In Rome, the patriarch, the male head, has power over life and death in the household however he deemed fit. He could do so through violence, he could do thro- through do so through killing. Friends, this is the context. This is the rotary phone. That we read this, it's like, what is going on? Now we can understand how radical the instructions are to the Christian household. In the Roman Empire, Paul is calling Christians to live by a different kind of order. Paul reshapes, reframes the Roman household around the lordship of Jesus Christ. He's not abolishing the system. Again, he doesn't have the power to do that, right? This is the tension living in an empire. But he's calling Christians to live radically different in that Roman household structure. Now, it's important to recognize the parts for us that make us kind of squirm and make us uneasy would have been the givens in the ancient world. Right? The parts were like, oh, that doesn't feel good, right? Those would have been givens. Those parts about wives and children and slaves, like Aristotle would be like, well, yeah, that goes without saying. But even there, notice that Paul reframes the motivation and says that you, these, these, are, these are all in light of the fact that, the, that Jesus Christ is Lord, Notice he reframes it. That that there is is a Lord over the household and that Lord is Jesus Christ. He's, He's reframing even that relationship. But the big ask, the big ask in these passages is to the male heads of the household. The big ask that Paul makes is to husbands, fathers, and masters to require, you have to understand this, to require anything of the male patriarch in a household would be radical and countercultural, Paul reframes all of these relationships in the context of mutual submission. Ephesians 5, verse 21 says, submit to one another, right? That's the framework. So when Paul writes to husbands, husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. He he explains that further in Ephesians. What does it mean to love? It means to to lay down one's life just as Christ laid down his life for the church. Husbands, love your wives in this way, to lay down your life for them. That's radical in first century Rome. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they'll be discouraged. Fathers, have the well-being of your child in mind. Encourage them. Don't treat them in a way that embitters them. Teach them to love by showing them an example of love. And even this word to masters: masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you have a master, a Lord in heaven. Treat your slaves fairly, do not abuse your power, and get this: you are not the master. It's beginning to challenge and shift the system into which this was written. In ancient Rome, the husband, the father, the master was often the same person, had no responsibility or expectation to treat those in his household a certain way. Just maintain order. That was your Roman duty as a citizen. And so this instruction of Paul was a massive step forward toward improving the lives of those who are in the subservient relationship. And how? By calling those in power to give up, to lay down their status and power for the sake of love and for the sake of the other, toward leveling the ground at the foot of the cross. Again, in our context, we read this like, ah, this feels offensive and oppressive, but in a first century context, this was subversive and radical. Are you with me? And here's the thing, we actually see it play out in the rest of this letter we see it play out in the rest of this letter to the church in Colossians, the gospel in practice, Colossi. In the concluding remarks of Colossians, chapter four, Paul mentions several people by name. We didn't read that section, but let me highlight a couple. Verse seven, he talks about uh, Tych- Tychicus, who's delivering this letter. So, by the way, in in this setting, someone would deliver this mail, letter, and Tychicus would then read this letter out loud to the community, the church community, everyone present. Do you know who was with Tychicus? A man by the name of Onesimus, verse 9. Paul says, Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you? Now, why do I point that out? Why is that significant? What we learn about Onesimus, we learn from Paul's letter to Philemon. It's the shortest of Paul's letters. Paul writes a letter to Philemon. And what we learn of Onesimus is that Onesimus is actually a runaway slave. Onesimus was Philemon's slave and he fled and he ran away. And Paul meets Onesimus back in Rome while Paul is in prison. And in that encounter, in that relationship, Onesimus comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And now Paul is sending Onesimus back to Colossae to Philemon. And how is Paul addressing Onesimus? Calling him a dear brother who is one of you, in case you didn't catch it, who is one of you. Do you see how radical and subversive this is? Again, in the context, in the, according to Roman law, Philemon could, could punish Onesimus. In fact, Philemon has the Roman right to put Onesimus to death for running away. But in the book of Philemon, Paul compels Philemon to receive Onesimus back, verse 16, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. Leveling the playing field. Again, don't miss this. Paul, again, as we said, does not have the authority or the influence as a prisoner of Rome to overthrow a corrupt and unjust system of slavery. But you know what he does have? He has the power and the influence to restore and liberate this one slave who he calls Brother Onesimus. And he does it in such a way to help another brother, Philemon, see the unjustness of this institution and in doing so, sets Philemon free as well. Wow. I was talking to Pastor Bill this week, and, and there is a church tradition actually suggests that Onesimus would become, I think it was bishop uh, in Ephesus. Onesimus would become a leader in the church. Wow. Another side. Also, in, 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 in Colossians 4, Paul mentions Nympha. It's right there on the screen. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Notice Paul doesn't explain, justify. He just mentions Nympha, a woman who is leading a church in her home. There's no need to explain it. There's just this reality that women were leaders in the early Christian church. There's some mentioned there is this shift happening with the gospel as it enters and saturates a system that is unequal and corrupt. And that is the unfolding story of gospel fruit. Friends, the power of the gospel slowly began to shift how Christians related with one another. The spirit began to transform relationships, reframe dynamics into more equitable and life-giving ways. Now when we see that play out, did it happen smoothly? Did it happen quickly? Were there bumps? And Of course. It was a, it's a broken journey. But today, as the Church of Jesus Christ, we can see and we can celebrate some of that fruit. We can celebrate that just next door this morning Pastor Mary was given the sermon. We can celebrate as a church community. And and at the same time, we can also wholeheartedly condemn institutions like slavery. We can condemn the sin and evil of racism. We can condemn the mistreatment of women and children. We can condemn domineering and abusive relationships of all kinds. And we can condemn and speak out against the misuse and abuse of power, particularly at an institutional level. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ demands something better and demands something different. For our purposes here this morning, this is where I I think the text can challenge and meet us. And it's not from like a 30,000 foot cultural perspective. Because here's the thing, just like Paul, who didn't have power to change all the issues of of his culture, I don't think I have that kind of influence in this moment but what Paul could do is challenge and encourage the fellowship of believers that he was addressing. And in that radically change, one specific relationship, Onesimus and Philemon. And so my hope is that the Spirit of God would do the same in our lives as well, and that we would allow the Spirit to challenge and encourage our relationships in our lives let the gospel speak into our context our relationships how does the gospel of Jesus Christ shape and inform our relationships today as we close i want to just each of us to think about the people and the relationships god has given us in this life and it really is an application of where we landed last week and whatever you do and whether in word and deed do it all in the name of jesus christ giving thanks to god the father through him how does the gospel shape and inform our relationships Let's make it simple. Jesus. Jesus is the starting point for how our relationships are guided, shaped, and formed. And here's where I want to land. Philippians 2. Here are these words, the Apostle Paul. I'm going to start a little bit before what's on the screen. He writes this, starting with verse 1. Rather in humility values others value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And here, verse five, in your relationships with one another, what's forming, what's shaping our relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. If, if God gives us authority in a certain situation, don't, don't abuse that. Rather, He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So friends, in light of Jesus Christ, in light of the gospel, in light of the cross, how are you doing in your relationships? how are you doing in your relationships? For those who are married, how are you doing in your marriage? Respecting, loving, willing to lay down my life. Do I listen well? How are we doing? As parents and as children, how how are we doing in those relationships? Do I work hard to encourage my kids? Do I show them patience, Am I slow to anger? Do I, do I provide boundaries that allow them to grow and thrive in a way that brings life? How does, how does the gospel shape your relationships in the workplace? In the workplace is one of those spaces where there's authority, right? You have bo- we, boss, there's bosses. Do, do, we, do we serve as serving the Lord? A word for those of us who are Bosses how do you lead for the benefit of those who are under your authority? Do we lead as Jesus Christ? How does the gospel shape our relationships in our community, and our neighborhoods? Am I concerned for my neighbor? Am I a person of peace? Am I hospitable? You know, the Greek word hospitable, I think we talked about this before, literally just means love for strangers. That's what it means. Am I a witness of the good news? Am I, do I speak with, seasoned with salt and grace as we ended here in our passage? Particularly those who don't know Jesus. Here's what I, I, the Spirit can speak to each of us. My prayer is that we would each consider our relationships and may the example and witness of Jesus Christ be our model and may the wisdom of Christ be our guide. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Will you join me? Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that words written in a different context, Lord, still speak powerfully today. And Lord, even though sometimes we, we read your word and we feel like we're, we're, we're fumbling with a rotary phone, Lord, we thank you for your spirit which leads us in prayer and the counsel of, of others to help us understand your word in light of the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel that reminds us that, Lord Jesus, you, you left glory, you left heaven and you stepped into the brokenness of this world. You laid down your life in love before any of us. We could never deserve it. We were reminded of that grace this morning in baptism. But Lord, you loved us in such a way to rescue us and to redeem us. Lord, may the cross of Christ continue to guide us as we learn to love those that you've placed in our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Amen. I invite you to stand and worship with us. No pen or quill, no scribe in perfect skill, with flawless words could capture all you. We'll hear the trumpet sound. You lead us home.
2: a reminder to each of us that we are God's children. And as children, we serve the one true Lord. We are not Lord, amen? Jesus Christ is Lord. As you go from here, uh, remember to get some donuts, some goodies. Uh, She's looking at me again. Can I get a smile? Maybe. We'll just pretend you smiled. We congratulate and we, we love our little ones and the promises of God. But as you go from here... Receive this blessing and if you'd like to hold your hands open to receive that blessing you're invited to do that hear this word now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever amen amen Amen. Amen. go in peace